1: My eyes
0: have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.
3: This is a CBS News special report. Dan Rather, reporting for CBS News from New York. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was shot to death by an assassin late today as he stood on a balcony in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. King had planned to lead another civil rights march in Memphis next Monday. We got the latest on the story now from Russ Hodge, news director of WREC-TV.
2: You're listening to The Sizzle on Iron Skillet Radio and Iron Skillet Television. Jay Sizzle,
4: guess what? what's that bro it's MLK day it is the Martin, day of MLK
5: Martin Luther King full-blown holiday mm-hmm. here in these United States a man who left an indelible mark on our country and uh I'm just surprised even though we have a national holiday a lot of people still are not celebrating mm-hmm,
4: mm-hmm. It's not even that they're not celebrating. A lot of people don't still recognize it as a holiday. I know some of the young people think it's just the day you get off from school. And it's the day at the beginning of January.
5: It's your recovery day from a long weekend. <laughs> this, is, this is your official recovery day from the New Year's. Because you really haven't recovered yet. You're still out. Uh, you, you still got the last little remnants mm-hmm. of the Kavassier. In their system, so they just finally get to purge it out. Now this is the last day to do it.
4: Yeah, this is that last one. You got a long haul between here and what Easter? Yeah, resurrection well, if you, time. That's if, a you, long if time. you have
5: not, if you have not purged whatever you got out your system by Easter, uh, you need to get resurrected because <laughs> there's some darkness on your soul. Lady. <laughs> whatever was going on, you need to come on down to the church house. We need to bless you. We need to come on up to the altar. need to do something, man. Every Sunday and Wednesday, come on
4: down. Mm -hmm. So I'm just thinking, as as we started, because we're old enough to remember when Mm -hmm. Dr. King Day was not a holiday. Right. uh, When there was a fight for it, you remember seeing the struggle that it was not only in Congress, but in Mm -hmm. state legislatures for this to happen. Yeah. So you remember your first when it was an official holiday? Do you remember around that time what
5: was going on in your mind? Um, it was just a lot of um, pride. And it was like, finally, you know, mm. um, Martin Luther King is, is, has been a revered person in the history of the United States, in our, in our very recent short-term history. But he's also been a person that's been very polarizing. Because of Martin Luther King, you had the remnants, not the remnants, but the resurgence of the Muslim doctrine in the United States. You had um, uh, you had Malcolm X, you had uh, Wallace Muhammad, you had those people who were in the backgrounds of the black American fight, but they weren't really in the forefront. And once you had Martin Luther King, who came in uh, with his nonviolent dogma, basically, you saw more people in the United States get involved, especially more white people get involved into the struggle. And I think that's where you saw it make the turn from being just a sidebar to it becoming something right on the main dinner plate Of the United States is something that had to be dealt with. That was race relations and equality in America. And I think that's one thing, the legacy of Martin Luther King was that he was able to bring this to the forefront. Um, I don't know if we would be in the position that we are in today had not Martin Luther King took the nonviolent approach.
0: You know,
4: it's amazing. I was watching a special on Marilyn Monroe and it's very interesting. You don't really, I was saying Marilyn Monroe was funny. She reminded me of an attractive version of Lucille Ball. And to the point is that she was funny. People never knew how funny she was. You didn't look Uh at the comedic side of Marilyn Monroe that really opened the door for other venues for her to get more exposure. In fact, she was doing things that the Kardashians use now, using the media to really promote herself. Right. Right. And during a commercial break, there's a a little slot for a program that's coming out during Black History Month where they're going to do a focus on Lyndon Baines Johnson. So it's an LBJ. Mm -hmm. But the whole thing is centrally tied around after President Kennedy's assassination, how Dr. King and the SEL movement and all of those things, the nonviolent movements, all of the, the work that was done by civil rights from the NAACP, and from other groups, how it helped LBJ to navigate through his administration, and how Dr. King played an integral role, how he had conversations with Dr. King literally on a weekly, if not daily basis, as to how they were going to strategize and put together groups from around the country to try and work together. And it speaks to how impactful Dr. King was, I mean, we just see it as someone, a person who marched and gave eloquent speeches, but you didn't realize the political impact that Dr. King had as he made moves, because we're thinking what, Malcolm X was assassinated in 63, and then Dr. King uh, was assassinated in 68, if I'm correct. So between that time, Dr. King was really the face of the... Civil rights movement. I mean, there were others around, but he was the true. He was the the provocateur of civil justice.
5: Well, he he was he was the oatmeal breakfast mm. version mm-hmm. that could be easily digested by America. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at the you had the the movement of the Black Panther Party. Like I said, you had the uh, the black Muslim movement Mm -hmm. here in the United States. And that was too spicy, Mm -hmm. even though the cause was correct about fighting for equality in the manner that they were doing it. But it was not um, digestible for mainstream America. This is the reason why Dr. King was so important, important because he was like, well, okay, um, the only reason why you can't eat oatmeal for breakfast is just because you don't like oatmeal. But if it's any other reason than that, you can digest this oatmeal, and that's that's what he was getting. That's the reason why I believe he got access to the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why you didn't see Huey Newton uh, in the White House. That's why you didn't see mm-hmm. um, the uh, Nation of Islam in in the White House because of them being perceived as being radical, too too far, too too pro black. Um, Dr. King was like, hey. Uh, in, in, in the in, in the in the in the Bill of Rights, it says here that I'm born into the United States as a citizen. I have inalienable rights um, that I can pursue a, a life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Here, the, these are the things that I should have. And so, one of the things I'm not getting right now is liberty. And so, he was able to appeal to those people out here. Say, you know what? That's wrong. And then the other side too. He was the one person who was able to use, just like you said with Marilyn Monroe, he was able to use TV, um, which was that medium back there. You only had a few channels. And so when they were going across the Edmund Pettus Bridge and you saw um, them being attacked, you saw the dogs come out, you saw the water hoses come out. For a lot of Americans who are not part of the Black culture, they didn't even know that was going on. And so all of a sudden, now it was in their living rooms as they're sitting there eating their dinner, and they were going, "Oh my God, that's just not right." It's the same way you look at now where, you you know people find out they watch World News Tonight, they find out that there is a problem over in Haiti. Um, you know, there's a there's an earthquake over there. All of a sudden, everybody gets ramped up over here. They really didn't even know where Haiti was, mm-hmm. but they want to start sending some money or do why? Because it's in their living room. And they feel like, oh, there's something that's got to be done. And so I believe that's what Martin Luther King was able to do, was make the civil rights situation for, um, I don't know what you, you know what you want to call it, the Negro back then in the United States, uh, make it palatable for those people out here to really just care.
4: Right. Well, you know, you look at all, because I always, uh, we talk about it in, in general terms, and we talk about colorization as it came in 1600s to 1800s. So we're always stuck in this white and black divide, but just let, we can go with melanated, non-melanated and say that there was a time when rights for young people who don't understand, there, were, there was not a bevy of rights that you had. And Dr. King became a national enemy and the way that it was used the same way in media to attack him was through his stance on the Vietnam War, His stance on Mm. going to war and all of those things, uh, having soldiers in Korea, having them in Vietnam, these were all issues. They were major issues that were taboo to be talked about at the time. As long as you were still doing the civil rights thing, you were cool. We're just we're going to slow roll this whole civil rights and processes thing. But when he started saying, hey, you know what? War isn't good. War is not right. And maybe we shouldn't be over there bothering people who aren't bothering us. Then it became a big issue. Then Dr. King was a subversive. He hated America. He wasn't a patriot. See, all these buzzwords come back in terms. It's funny how things have not changed in, what, 60? Let's go from 1960 to now. So you're talking about another 60 years, how some of the same things were in play the use of media, propaganda, being able to choose sides, who was going to do this and who was going to do that. It's amazing that it all kind of culminates in what happened between 1960 and probably 1970. Probably, to me, the most impactful
5: time in American history. Well, you know, the status quo was the status quo for a long time.
0: Mm
5: -hmm. Um, And so we have been a subculture in the United States for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Um, We look at, you know, you had slave ships coming from uh, Africa to the colonies for nearly 200 years. I mean, you have slave ships coming across during that period of time. And so Mm -hmm. part of the history of the Negro in the United States was part of the culture from the founding fathers of the United States. Mm. So we had all, we we had been a subculture for a long time. I mean, even to the point where you had some people who, and I say Negro, because that's what it was called back there. Whatever you want to call yourself, black, African-American, it don't really matter. Whatever, it's what they think of you. And most of all, it's what you think of yourself. But so the subculture that was the American Negro, was already embedded in the people's history, you know, from their grandmother to their great-grandmother to their great-great-grandmother. So you had this subculture, and all of a sudden, in a 15-year span almost, uh, less than two decades, came from having to go to separate bathrooms, figure out a separate water fountains, coming through the back door of restaurants to pick up food, to all of a sudden being able to sit at the counter at Woolworths and to be able to order a meal alongside a you know their white counterparts. And so that was a huge movement in that 20-year span. We're talking from, from 1960s, 1955 to 1975. I mean, that was a huge movement that went on right there. You saw people being assassinated. JFK, you saw uh, uh, Martin Luther King being assassinated. You saw Bobby Kennedy being assassinated. You saw... Um, people from the Black Panther Party being assassinated. It was Bobby Seals? Was it Bobby Seals?
4: No. I think It was, uh, Bobby Seals was arrested. Um, Uh, You're talking about Minister Fred Hammond. Yeah, Fred Fred Hammond. Hammond. Fred Fred Hampton.
5: Fred Hampton. So you saw Fred Hampton being assassinated. Mm -hmm. And so you saw all these people because you saw power trying to be Mm wrested back, uh, trying to be put back into what it was for those hundred years beforehand. We still see that going on today. Uh, one thing I was reading earlier about, what would Dr. King say if he was here today? Mm-hmm. And I think he would be amazed by, he would be 93, so he would be the same age as my mom. Mm-hmm. So um, what would he say about today? Well, I think he would be amazed at the progress that has been made. Mm-hmm. But I also think he would be dismayed at the you know, inappropriateness, and that's the only word I could think of right now, I know it doesn't fit, of the education system for African Americans in urban areas Mm -hmm. that how they're just not being set up for to have a successful uh, life in the United States because they're not getting your basic education to be able to compete in the workforce. Uh, If you look at our public schools in urban areas, especially um, predominantly black areas. And if you look at those schools, the way they function and then if you go into other uh, areas um, that are not black, and their public schools, and you see how their schools are ran, you, you can see a decided difference all around the country, um, which I think is systematic, to tell you the truth, because you see it everywhere. So I yeah. think he would be um, amazed and dismayed all at the same time of all the progress we made, especially with Barack Obama and senators and law- and um, judges and congressmen that we have. But we also see that we are way behind the curve as it comes nationally about making a indelible mark and change the United States.
4: Yeah, when you talk about the mark that's being made, one of those things that we look at is when you had open judge seats and chairs around the country that were not filled, and you still look at a Supreme Court where there's not a mixture of diversity. You have one African-American on the court, and that's about it. That's as far as it goes. And I think dismayed is a good word that Dr. King would be When you look at the inadequacies, but you still see, as you said, it's that systematic difference between the qualities of finance in these communities. You go into any urban community, be they African American, be they Hispanic, even be they cultural, if they're Asian or or Pan or uh, Pacific Islanders, you still see that inadequacy from their schools to their non- melanated counterparts any of the white schools that you see where you have a greater tax base you have more of infusion of programs for them to succeed you don't see those type of things you don't see the effort and the force for education in urban areas especially in melanated areas where you know that you need the education to move forward but you don't have the financial backing, which we see in our area all the time within Northwest Indiana, Northwest Illinois. You always see that in the Chicagoland in Northwest Indiana region. The diversity is not where it's, it's a diversity of preference for education. It's a diversity in preference toward racial divides where you have communities. Chicago is what is always said to be a city of little communities put together. You know, there's always little areas, little pockets that make one big city. But in those little pockets and in those little areas, you have you have a, <laughs> a market divide between haves and have nots in some of those areas. In fact, remembering when Dr. King came to Illinois, even in his writings, he said, Illinois, when he came to the Chicagoland area, was the most racist place most he had ever racist, been. most
5: segregated place he had ever been was the city of Chicago. But, mm-hmm. And it's still that way today. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have parts of Chicago, the dividing line. You've got black people across the street over there, and you've got white people across the street over there or oh, you've got Hispanic people over there and they do not cross that line. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got, you got very few communities that are integrated and, only reason, and a lot of the time, they're around educational areas like the DePaul area, like um, University of Chicago, um, places like that. But when you start getting where those major universities are not there, you start seeing that we get stay very segregated again. Uh, but again, going back to your point about the judges, um, you got to remember both of these parties, whether you're Republican, Democrat, or Independent, none of them are really geared toward the advancement of Black people in the United States. Um, What they really look for is how can we get the Black vote? And so there's certain causes that, that need to be addressed so that they can gin up people to come out and vote, and that's what you start seeing around the big elections. However, though, you don't see that the biggest elections that we're not part of, because we don't know to be part of them, are those elections for judges. Mm-hmm. You very seldom do you people come down in there and they vote a straight Democrat ticket or they vote a straight Republican ticket, and you have no idea what those judges, how they rule. You have no idea what's going on. And we don't really have a any type of mechanism in place so that you can get judges who would be more pro- Um, raising a people who have been um, suppressed in this country to make things better for them. Because it's those rulings on these big cases, especially um, uh, cases that you're dealing with uh, environmental issues, Um, things like that, those rulings, like you saw what was going on in the Detroit suburbs with the water. Um, You saw so many things happening in these communities that it should not be happening in. And it's those big rulings by those judges that makes a big difference about are will those big major companies care about dumping or building on a contaminated waste site? Because a lot of times what they'll do, they'll put money aside. They know they're going to make X amount of money over here. We're going to get sued. So we're already figuring that, you know, we put money in the coffers over here. It's only going to cost us, uh, it's going to cost us one dollar to make 10. I'll take that all day long. So sue us, but we're good to go. We don't really care about your lawsuits. And if that's the case, we have enough lawyers that we can wait you out. It doesn't really matter, you know? So um, that's the one thing about our our, judgeships. That's a big problem. And we don't have a mechanism in our communities to know which judge would be best for us. And that is the most important thing, I think, in our voting um, that we need to get better at is finding out what are these judges doing and how can we um, affect that? Because you'll start seeing things change a little bit more. Uh, but also, and another point I want to make right quick, too, you can tell um, what they think about the community, the uh, African American community, by the commercials that are on your television programs. If you look up, you know, the ones, if you look through uh, Black television shows that come out, the comics they put out, the mind numbing things that they put out. I mean, Blackish came out, which was, uh, I didn't like it at first, but when it did start going, um, they did hit some really good um, episodes in there about the black community. But if you start looking at who are the advertisers on these shows, and a lot of times you see it it's fast food, uh, restaurants, it's um, clothing, it's all consumer based product. but you don't see e-trade um, putting a commercial out. You don't see ameritrade putting a commercial out on blackish. You don't see Weeball putting out, uh, you don't see cryptocurrencies advertising on here because the only reason why they don't advertise on there, because they don't believe those people are going to use their services. I remember one time I was listening to urban radio and I want to say it was Western Union and a commercial came on a black radio station that say, if you need to put some money on the, your books for, for, for your person in prison, you can use us to do that. It was something like that, and I was, and my mouth just fell open. You're not gonna, you're not gonna hear that on the uh, the the uh, top forty easy listening uh, rock stations. You're not, and I'm sure, and they have as many people in jail in that community. You don't understand, but this is what they think about your community when they advertise like that because they don't think. They say, okay, you're gonna buy over here. You're not gonna go trade stocks. You're not gonna go uh, do a number of other things like that, that the rest of America is doing, but you will go to McDonald's. You will go eat fried chicken. You will um, go to Spotify, you know? And so you're just saying, you're just a consumer-based entity and not something that's gonna move the uh, needle um, politically unless we want you to move the needle. And then when that comes up, then we'll bring up a case or something like that, get everybody upset and get you out of voting again. So um, you still, a lot has changed in the United States, but a lot hasn't changed still.
4: Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny, I have a quick story. There was a young man, I pulled up to White Castle um, and it was right around election time, so It must have been primary time. It wasn't general. I think it was, no, maybe it was general. Um, And uh, he had, I had my sticker on and something. And I asked him, I said, did you vote, young brother? And he said, oh, no, bro, you know, I don't vote in them things like that. I don't get involved in that. You know, I ain't worried about, they don't listen to my voice anyway. I said, well, young brother, do you understand? I said, let me ask you this real quick. Have you been to jail? Have you been to county? They've been locked up. Have your people been locked up? He's like, yeah, man. I said, "Mm mm-hmm. I said, do you know the judge that locked you up? No. I said, do you know that judge's perspective? Do you know what they think about your community? Do Do they have any plan for your community? I said, see, when you're looking at voting now, you're looking at not just what, you don't make the decision nationally, but locally. You make all the decisions that who's in your community, who's best serving your community. These are the things you help to decide. And I think when we look at Dr. King Day, we have to look at the community as a whole. What was his perspective? What was if you haven't read one of Dr. King's books, you're doing yourself a disservice. And one of my favorite Dr. King's is Chaos or Community: Where Do We Go From Here? Now it's probably it's about 300 pages. It's not long. But it was the first book I really had to take a dictionary and have my dictionary on one side and read it. And that was before the Google machine, as (laughs) Jay loves to call it. It was so impactful and it was so in-depth that you really had to get the mind of Dr. King was so great that you really had to get involved in in finding out his lexicon and finding out what was in his, his word base to get a full understanding. But everything he talked about in that book is still manifesting itself 60 years later and the problems and the difficulties we're having. And as you said, Jay, when you don't understand your voting power, when you don't understand where you stand in your community or how your community stands, then there's a problem. And this is one of the things that while we're looking at Dr. King Day as a nice holiday to relax, it's also a day of reflection. This was also that time when I remember when I was younger, you always went to an ecumenical uh, uh, lecture or speech or something at church. There was always a program with a speaker who came in and talked about the legacy of Dr. King. But this was a moment to reflect. And this truly now, as we move forward, this is truly the time to get our young people, to get our community to understand in reflection, Just as you said, one of the biggest things, who supports your community and what supports your community? If you're tired of liquor stores and churches being the only thing in your community, who else then reaches out to your community? If you're not getting the commercials where they're talking about stocks and bonds or we're talking about investment, but you're talking about fried chicken, you're talking about soda, and you're talking about chips, and you're talking about things that are not for your benefit. This is the time now to start. And I think this is the ground is ripe right now. We're talking about the filibuster. You're talking about how this impacts not just your local government, but how this is going to impact communities nationwide. So to me, Dr. King Day is the day that you sit back, reflect and learn more about your community.
5: Yeah, and definitely that, Greg. And what you said was uh, the most important thing is the time for reflection. But it's also a time for action, too. Mm-hmm. And every day should be Dr. King Day. You know, not just today, but tomorrow and, and every other day, if you see things that need to be done. Because our life here is very short. It tells us in the Bible that it's just but a vapor. We're going to look up one day, we're going to be gone. I know I look at myself here. I got another birthday spinning around the corner here in a minute or two. Mm-hmm. And uh, it looks – I just remember last year I was running stadium stairs and, and doing all those type of things, and now I look up – a they fly the stairs, I go, all right, here we go. You know, so the thing is time, time waits for no one. And uh, if you're gonna make some type of mark out here, um, start making it because time is going by quickly. And if you want your um, situation to be, word I'm looking for, if you want your, your current situation to be passed down to your grandchildren, or to your children or do you want their situation to be better? If you want mm. their situation to be better, then you need to do better now. Hmm. So do we we need to start making some if you love your grandchildren, your kids, you need to start doing something now. And um also just wanted to say on Martin Luther King Day, I appreciate all those people who were not black who got involved in the struggle of black people, of the Negro in the united states because had it not been for you we would still be bound to still be in chains and um for those people out there who had a heart which is most of america um who said you know this is wrong and we as americans shouldn't be living like this and people went out and supported um you saw the black lives matter movement you saw a lot of people who weren't black in the black lives matter movement out there supporting that movement. You saw a lot of people giving money. I was watching the thing today, right after uh, Dr. King got assassinated, they had a, a round table and I say, I want to say it was um, uh, Ralph Abernathy, some other people like that, but Charlton Heston was on that the, on that round table. Mm-hmm. This was back in the sixties, mm-hmm. you know, this was back when they did, you know, there was integration and all this type of thing. Oh, this when situations were rough back in 68 in or so. And they're just and they were coming together in a round table um, standing up for what was right so I just want to appreciate anybody no matter what color you are um and color is, is something here we divide you know you know I'll say this one thing too it so says white people didn't exist before I want to say the 1960s there was a time where they were Italians and they were polish and they were Irish Americans and you had your communities were Um, segregated out like that. The Polish people lived here and the Irish lived here and and so forth and so on. But you saw an attempt to suppress the Negro back then, the African-American, the Black back then, because now they lumped all those people. Instead of having their identity being ethnic, they created an identity for you. And that was white. You know, because you had always identified with being Polish or Irish or things like that. So I just, you look at that situation, they were saying, okay, well, you have, you, you, you can't call yourself a Nigerian American. You can't call yourself a uh, an American from other from other different countries over there because we don't know where we came from. Most of, uh, most of our, all of our history started 400 years ago. Most of us can only go back you know, two or three generations into our history, and that's it. We don't have any history to Africa. We don't know what part of Africa we came from. We have most um, Black Americans don't have any African cultural um, uh, traditions that are handed down to you in your uh, family. None. We don't. There. We don't speak a lick of what language we spoke over there. Mm-hmm. Nothing like that. So, but if you look at um, people who got, who came here on their own from other countries, they still have Irish traditions that they have. They still have the, the Irish parade. You still have um, Polish people. They still had a pierogi fest. You mm-hmm. still have all these different types of things because you can go back to your heritage, and and because you know where you came from for African-Americans, Black people, whatever you want to call it, it really don't matter to me, is that we are the only real Americans here because our history started here. My history started here when whatever ancestor of mine who was strong enough to make that voyage over here, who didn't die, who wasn't thrown over to the sharks, who lived through um, uh, beatings, who lived through um, being put in huts who lived generation after generation after generation, my ancestors were strong enough to make it through. My ancestors were strong enough, and then three and then um, three generations ago, four generations ago, A. E. A- A- McDowell, who was my great grandmother, was born into slavery, and she is the only she is my only legacy that I have. I can't go anywhere further past her. And I remember seeing her, so I said thank you to all of my ancestors who made it through. Cause had any one of them not made it, I wouldn't be here today. And so, um, and I think that's the legacy of Martin Luther King that we have to think about it. If we're black and you're here, your ancestors did a hell of a thing to make it through that. Um, and so that's the thing and we owe them to make the situation for the next generations who come underneath us that we make their lives here in these United States better. Cause regardless of what anybody wants to say, United States is still the greatest country in the world. You have a lot of people out here who will say, oh no, this, that, and other, yeah, go live somewhere else and come back and tell me. You know, go, go, go live, go over uh, in Arab states and go live over there and come back and tell me how go live in Africa and come and then you come back over here and tell me because you haven't lived over there. I know people who lived over here that's why you see people from africa migrating to get into the united states even as bad as we are come over here in droves why because opportunities here so love your country but also love yourself while you're in this country and um you know it's martin luther king day it's it's a you know he had a dream and we're part of his dream so it's a it's a good day as you say to reflect (laughs)
4: Well, you know who it is. You know what it is. It is the sizzle here on Iron Skillet Radio and Iron Skillet Television. And before we get out of here, I'd like to send some condolences to some families. It's so many passings that's happened, but before recording, I found out that Les Gropstein of the score passed this weekend. And so we want to send condolences and our love to his family and to his friends and You know, it's just one of those things, as we talked about remembrance, this is also a time to communicate with family and loved ones. If you have someone you haven't spoken with, you're off today. Give them a call. Tell them, hey, how you doing? Absolutely. It's Dr. King Day. I want to make things right with you. Let's go get a burger
5: together. Do something.
4: Be loving.
5: Give out your flowers while they're alive. You know what I'm saying? Let's not wait. Let's not wait to go a big long line. When they opened up the mic at the at the funeral, so we can get to say, you know, I wish I would have told them how much I really cared.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: Call so, them today. Call them you know, right, right now.
1: <laughs> yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. and all of the. other I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. And that's all I want to say. If I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a word song, if I can show somebody he's traveling wrong, then my Living
6: will not be in vain. If I can help some party as I pass along, if I can cheer some With a word or song, if I can show somebody his track. A Christian art
7: y'all hear me yo I've spoken before parliaments kings queens leaders of the world I've been doing this for a long time but this is intimidating following incredible And let's say one thing to rest. I may be a practicing Catholic. I used to go to 7.30 Mass every morning in high school and then in college before I went to the black church. Not a joke. Andy knows this. Andy, it's so great to see you, man. You're one of the greatest we've ever had. You really are, Andy. Andy and I took on apartheid in South Africa and a whole lot else. They didn't want to see him coming. But uh We used uh, to—that's where we'd organize, to march and to segregate the city. My state was, like yours, segregated by law. We were a slave state to our great shame. And uh, we had a lot of leftovers of the bad things coming from that period of time. But uh, uh, I—anyway, that's another time. But I learned a lot. And I promise, if any preacher— Preach to me back then. I'm not going to be nearly as long as you were. (laughs) Actually, I have a bad reputation for speaking too long. He followed the path of Moses, a leader of inspiration, calling to the people not to be afraid. And always, always, as my grandfather would say, keep the faith. He followed the path of Joseph. A believer in dreams and the divinity they carry and the promise they hold. And like John the Baptist, he prepared us for the greater hope ahead, one who came to bear witness to the light. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a nonviolent warrior for justice who followed the word and the way Of his lord and his savior on this day of remembrance we gather at dr king's cherished ebenezer i say emphasize the word cherished ebenezer and by the way sis every good man every good brother needs a really strong strong sister you think i'm kidding I'm no Dr. King, and my sister's not you, but I tell you what. She's smarter, better looking, and a better person than I am. (laughs) Managed all my campaigns. Folks, you know, uh, on this day of remembrance, as we gather here at his cherished Ebenezer, to commemorate what would have been Dr. King's 94th birthday, we gather to contemplate his moral vision— and to commit ourselves to his path, to his path, the path that leads to the beloved community, to the sacred place, that sacred hour when justice rains down like waters and righteousness was a mighty stream. Folks, to the King family, I know no matter how many years pass, doesn't matter how many years pass, Those days of remembrance are difficult. They bring everything back as if it happened yesterday. It's hard for you. I don't want to thank the King family, presumptuous me to do this, but on behalf of the whole congregation for being willing to do this year in and year out because you give so much, so much to the rest of us. And we love you all. We love you all. To fully honor Dr. King, we have to pay tribute to Mrs. Coretta Scott King, who we dearly miss. She led the movement that created the King Holiday and so much more. In my view, this is her day as well. And the Raphael Warnock, Reverend, doctor, senator, Congratulations on your historic victory. A fellow Morehouse man. I've come to know a lot of Morehouse men. That old saying you, you can't tell them much. But I tell you what. We've set up for the first time ever in the White House, the Divine Nine Committee. It's active every day. And I watch how the other graduates pick on the Morehouse man. You stand in Dr. King's pulpit and you carry on his purpose. And this service doesn't stop at the church door. It didn't with Dr. King, it doesn't with you, and it doesn't with the vast majority of you standing here sitting before me. I want to thank you for the honor of inviting me to be called to America's America's Freedom Church. And thank you to this congregation and to all the distinguished guests, elected and unelected officials that are here today who've done so much over so many years, and so many young people are going to do so much more and we were able to do. What's your name, honey? Well, it's good to see you. Maybe I can have a picture with you before I leave, okay? Is that all right? I say this with all sincerity. I stand here humbled, being the first sitting president of the United States to have an opportunity to speak at Ebenezer Sunday service. You've been around for 136 years. I know I look like it, but I haven't. <laughs> I'm God-fearing, thanks to my parents and to the nuns and priests who taught me in school. But I, I am no preacher. But I've tried to walk my faith, as all of you have. I stand here... Inspired by the preacher who is one of my only political heroes. I've been saying, and Andy's heard me say it for years, I have two political heroes my entire life. When I started off as a 22-year-old kid in the East Side of the Civil Rights Movement, and got elected to the United States Senate when I was 29. I wasn't old enough to take office. And I had two heroes. Bobby Kennedy. I admired John Kennedy, but I could never picture him at my kitchen table. But I could Bobby and no malarkey, Dr. King, Dr. King. And uh, the fact is that, uh, you know, I stand here at a critical juncture for the United States and the world, in my view. We're at what I've some of my colleagues are tired of hearing me say, but we're at what we call an inflection point. One of those points in world history where what happens the last few years will happen the next six or eight years is going to determine what the world looks like for the next 30 to 40 years. It happened after World War II. It's happening again. The world is changing. There's much at stake. Much at stake. And you know, the fact is that This is the time of choosing. This is the time of choosing. Direct choices we have. Are we a people who will choose democracy over autocracy? Couldn't ask that question 15 years ago. Everyone thought democracy was settled. Not for African Americans. But democracy as an institutional structure was settled. But it's not. It's not. We have to choose a community over chaos. Are we the people who are going to choose love over hate? These are the vital questions of our time and the reason why I'm here as your president. I believe Dr. King's life and legacy show us the way we should pay attention. I really do. Dr. Martin Luther King was born in a nation where segregation was a tragic fact of life. He had every reason to believe, as others of the generation did, that history had already been written, that the division would be America's destiny. But he rejected that outcome. He heard Micah's command to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. And so often, when people hear about Dr. King, People think of his ministry and the movement were most about the epic struggle for civil rights and voting rights. But we do well to remember that his mission was something even deeper. It was spiritual. It was moral. The goal of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which Dr. King led, stated it clearly and boldly. And I must be repeated again now. To redeem the soul of America. I'm not joking. To redeem the soul of America. What, what is the soul of America? It's easy to say, but what is the soul of America? Well, the soul is the breath, the life, the essence of who we are. The soul makes us us. The soul of America is embodied in the sacred proposition That we're all created equal in the image of God. That was the sacred proposition for which for which Dr. King gave his life. It's a sacred proposition rooted in Scripture and enshrined in the Declaration of Independence. The sacred proposition he invoked on that day in 1963 when he told my generation about his dream. A dream in which we're all entitled to be treated with my father's favorite word, dignity and respect. A dream in which we all deserve liberty and justice. And it's still the task of our time to make that dream a reality because it's not there yet. To make Dr. King's vision tangible. To match the words of the preachers and the poets with our deeds. As the Bible teaches us, we must be doers of the word. Doers of the word. The battle for the soul of this nation is perennial. It's a constant struggle. It's a constant struggle between hope and fear, kindness and cruelty, justice and injustice. Against those who traffic in racism, extremism, and insurrection, a battle fought on battlefields and bridges, from courthouses and ballot boxes to pulpits and protest. And at our best, the American promise wins out. At our best, we hear and heed the injunctions of the Lord and the whispers of the angels. But well, I don't need to tell you that we're not always at our best. We're fallible. We fail and fall. But faith and history teach us that however dark the night, joy cometh in the morning. And that joy comes with the commandments of Scripture. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy mind, and all thy soul. And love thy neighbor as thyself. Easy to say. Easy to say. But very hard to do. But in that commandment, in my view, lies the essence of the gospel. And the essence of the American promise. It's when we see each other as neighbors and not enemies that progress and justice come. It's when we see each other as fellow human beings, as children of God, that we bend to begin to walk the path of Dr. King's beloved community. A path his dream inspired and his legacy propels us forward to this day. Here's what I learned in my life and my career along that path, as many of you have learned along your path. We're all imperfect beings. We don't know where and what fate will deliver to us and when. But we do, we can do our best to seek a life of light and hope and love and, yes, truth, truth. That's what I try to do every day to build the future that we all want, or reminding ourselves that nothing, nothing is guaranteed in our democracy. Nothing. Every generation is required to keep it, defend it, protect it, to be repairs of the breach. And to remember that the power to redeem the soul of America lies where it always has lay in the hands of we the people. We the people. I was vividly reminded of that truth on the South Lawn of the White House. I believe you were there, both of you, both your senators, on the South Lawn of the White House with our Vice President Kamala Harris, and hearing these words, and I quote, It took just one generation from segregation to the Supreme Court of the United States, end of quote. Those are the words of Katanji drowned Jackson, our Supreme Court Justice. took just one generation of segregation to the Supreme Court of the United States. As I told folks at the time, she's smarter than you are. As Dr. King said, give us the ballot and we will place judges on the bench who will do justly. (coughs) And we are. That's the promise of America, where change is hard but necessary. (coughs) Excuse me. Progress is never easy, but it's always possible. And the things do get better on our march toward a more perfect union. But at this inflection point, we know there's a lot of work that has to continue on economic justice civil rights, voting rights. I'm protecting our democracy. And I'm remembering that our job is to redeem the soul of America. Look, I get accused of being an inveterate optimist. I call that the Irish of it. We are never on top, always stepped on, but we were optimistic. Like Dr. King was optimistic. Folks, uh, as I said, progress is never easy. But redeeming the soul of the country is absolutely essential. I doubt whether any of us would have thought even in Dr. King's time, that literally the institutional structures of this country might collapse, like we're seeing in Brazil, we're seeing in other parts of the world. Folks, I'll close with this, with a blessing I see today. In the Oval Office, and many of you have been there, been there in my office, You get to set it up the way you want, within reason. As I sit at my desk, (laughs) as I sit at my desk and look at the fireplace, just to the left is the bust of Dr. King. It's there in that spot on purpose Because he was my inspiration as a kid. He does know where we should go. I ran for three reasons. I said I wanted to restore the soul of America, I wanted to rebuild this country from the bottom up and the middle out, and I wanted to unite it. And not far from him, if you look about 40, 50 degrees to the right, There is another statue, another bust of Rosa Parks. People ask me. Why? I say I put in my words, she just say, I've had enough. I've had enough. Folks, uh, I often think of the question that Dr. King asked us all those years ago. I think it's important you all remember. I think it's important the nation remember it. He said, where do we go from here? That's a quote. Where do we go from here? Well, my message to the nation on this day is we go forward. We go together, when we choose democracy over autocracy, a beloved community over chaos, when we choose believers in the dreams, to be doers, to be unafraid, always keeping the faith. Every time I walk out of my Irish Catholic grandfather's home up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, his name was Ambrose Finnegan. And he'd yell, Joey, keep the faith. My grandmother, no, Joey, spread it, <laughs> spread the faith. No, I'm serious. This is a Catholic rosary I have on my wrist, one my son had on the, day, the night he was dying. The point is, there's hope. There's always hope. We have to believe. And ladies and gentlemen, that was Dr. King's path in my view. Path to keeping the faith. And it must be our path. Folks, for God's sake, this is the United States of America. The United States. There's nothing beyond our capacity. Nothing beyond our capacity if we set our mind to it. And ladies and gentlemen, we're a land of dreamers and a land of doers. Nothing's beyond our capacity. And the gospel song that Dr. King loved, as I understand he always told he did. We've come too far from where we started. Nobody told me that the road would be easy. I don't believe he brought me this far to leave me. He did not go this far to leave me. My fellow Americans, I don't think the Lord brought us this far to leave us. I really don't. My word laid my fellow Americans God bless Dr. Martin Luther King and his family. And based on his, one of his favorite hymns, Precious Lord, take my hand through the storm, through the night, and lead me on to the light. May God bless you all, and let's go find the light. We can do this. Amen. A
8: new day is dawning in Boston. A sculpture being unveiled in Boston Common called The Embrace, It was inspired by a photo of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King after he'd been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. What's striking to me about it is of all of the images that you could have selected you chose this one when they met here they were people full of dreams full of ambition and full of hope and they chose to actually commit those dreams to one another and to society and that day was like Proof that they'd done what—it was all worth it. That's right. The start of the dream is a love story in Boston. King and Scott were students and met on a blind date in 1951. They soon became inseparable and started their journey together toward a cause larger than themselves. For the sculpture artist Hank Willis Thomas, stripped away everything but the embrace. Not everyone has arms and hands, right? But all of us have been embraced, right? All of us know what it's like to feel embraced. This work is a collaboration between Thomas and the mass design group. It beat out 125 other design proposals. The sculpture is made up of more than 600 pieces of bronze. Welded together at a foundry in Washington state and shipped across the country in 7 pieces then reassembled. The sculpture sits on a plaza made up of diamond shaped pieces of granite designed to honor the African-American quilt making tradition. All around, plaques featuring the names of local Boston civil rights heroes. When you saw it for the first time fully installed here, what was your reaction? Oh, I
6: cried like a baby. I cried like a
1: baby.
8: Amori Paris Jeffries is the executive director of Embrace Boston, which is behind the project. Boston has had a, shall we say, long and, and, and complicated relationship with race. How do we hope that this monument helps change that story? You know, there's about 7 million people that visit Boston Common every year. They might hear a story of patriots, they might hear a story of freedom, and they might stumble across this monument and hear the story of the kings. This is about understanding black people's place in this historic city. The location of the memorial is just steps away from where Dr. King gave a speech before 22,000 people in 1965. Later today, Martin Luther King III and his wife, Andrea Waters King, will be there for the unveiling. When you saw the renderings for the first time, what what did you think?
3: I thought, this is a powerful image. Sometimes we are afraid to embrace, but for dad and mom to show us what embracing is, to have a manifestation of what they consistently did. It's that it really is about the manifestation of love. And dad had obviously a love for his wife and family, but he had a love for humanity and so did mom.
2: It's also
8: a reminder of the legendary couple's early years in Boston.
2: I would imagine it was a sweetness to that time. It wasn't very long after they were married and after they left Boston and settled in Montgomery, and then from there until the end of his life in 1968,
6: it was a very public life.
8: That bond, now immortal, arms entwined, holding each other up, clinging to the dream. A lot of people see a heart. Oh, you're right. When people come. And they experience this. What do you want them to take away from that experience?
7: I want them to take away the
8: responsibility to carry on the legacy of the kings, who were devoted to unconditional love, to community, to humanity, and to hope. I mean, it, it really was just a beautiful piece of, of public art there in Boston that I got to see a few days ago. But it's also the image that they selected, and, and Martin Luther King III uh, talked about this as well. The picture that they selected there's so many pictures of yeah, king yeah. that we've seen over the years yeah. but that one where mm-hmm. he's he's smiling we don't really see dr king smiling as much yeah. mm-hmm. and if you also notice Coretta scott king's holding him up mm-hmm. but his weight is on on her shoulders mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's very important to the uh, to hank the artist uh, to 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 portray that part mm-hmm. uh, of, of the King story as well so um it's yeah. beautiful and striking, yeah. and glad to see Coretta Scott King get yes, her too as that, well. Yes, more than a decade in the making, by the mm-hmm. way. There's also a really impressive um, interactive component for visitors to scan a QR code and learn a little bit more about the history of the place. Embrace Boston also working on creating a community center and event space in Roxbury as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, a huge thanks to our station, NBC10 Boston, for their help with the story
0: as beautiful. well.
2: Beautiful. So, that was yeah. beautiful, Craig. Oh, yeah. Beautiful.
0: Thank you.
3: King, Van roll 20, sound 36. Dr. King, this church is as good a place as any to go back over your commitment to the civil rights movement. When you went out from here into university and then you went to Montgomery, Alabama and started the bus boycotts there. What was the philosophy of the Civil Rights Movement as you saw it then, more than ten years ago? Well, I would say then the philosophy
1: was that we must go all out to use legal and nonviolent methods to gain full citizenship rights uh, for the Negro people of our country. Uh, Of course, uh, that particular struggle and that philosophy centered on breaking down all of the barriers of legal segregation. So I would say that in that period, uh, the basic thrust for the gaining of citizenship rights for Negroes uh, was to end uh, the humiliation surrounding the whole system of legal
3: segregation. Dr. King, was there something peculiar to the place where you started and the kind of people you attracted. I mean by that, there was a strong attachment on the part of your parishioners in Montgomery to the church. They were older people, weren't they?
1: Yes, I would say by and large, they were older people who uh, participated in the boycott because they were the ones using the bus. bus more than anybody else. And uh, Montgomery was a community, predominantly church-senate, so that uh, it was very easy to get to the vast majority of Negroes because they were in some way
3: connected with a church in the community. Sir, in addition to your commitment to the idea of nonviolence, wasn't it also the only thing you could do, the white community having the monopoly on violence, that if you had tried violence, they would have met it with violence. It was the only device open to you, wasn't it?
1: Well, I'll put it another way, that uh, morally I was led to nonviolence because I felt that it was the best moral way to deal with the problem. We were seeking to establish a just society. And uh, it was my feeling then and it is my feeling now that uh, violence is certainly much more uh, socially destructive, and it creates many more social problems than it solves. So I was led to nonviolence for deep moral reasons. Now, there is no doubt about the fact that in our struggle in Montgomery and all over the United States for that matter, nonviolence is also practically sound. Uh, It would just be impractical for the Negro to turn to violence. He has neither the instruments nor the techniques of violence. We are about 10 or 11 percent of the total population of the nation, and I would say we are about one-tenth or one percent of the firepower. So it would just be totally impractical and unwise and unrealistic for the Negro to think of violence. Well, I saw this in the beginning in uh, Montgomery, but this wasn't the basic reason that I uh, turned to nonviolence and that I believed in it as a philosophy, I turned to it because I felt that it was a morally excellent way to deal with the problem of racial injustice in our country.
3: Is there something about nonviolence that made it, and I use that in the past tense, that made it more useful among Southern Negroes than the ghetto Negroes of the North?
1: I wouldn't say there's uh, anything that makes it more useful to uh, Southern Negroes. I think it is true that uh, we've had more nonviolent movements in the South because uh, the problem for many years was more crystallized and, in a sense, more visible in the South. Uh, We didn't have many civil rights activities on a massive scale in the North until three or four years ago. So I would say that uh, we just haven't had a chance to experiment on a broad scale with nonviolence in the Northern Ghetto. I have the feeling that nonviolence is as applicable uh, and workable in the Northern Ghetto as it is uh, in the South. Now, there's a larger job there. Uh, The frustrations at points are much deeper. The bitterness is deeper. And I think that's because in the South, we can see pockets of progress here and there. We've really made some strides that are very visible, and every Southern Negro knows that he can do things today that he couldn't do four or five years ago. Where in the North, uh, the Negro sees only retrogress, uh, and he doesn't find it as easy to get his vision centered on his target, the target of opposition, as he does in the South. Consequently, this is made for despair and at many points cynicism, a feeling that you can't win. And it simply means that we've got to develop in the North a massive job of organization and mobilizing forces and resources to deal with the problem in the urban ghettos of the North, just as we've done it in the South. In the South,
3: particularly in Alabama, you had visible villains, Jim Clark, Bull Connor, cattle prods, police dogs. But in the North, you don't have those visible villains. Isn't it hard to get your people aroused and directed at something that isn't visible?
1: Well, that's exactly right, and this is what I was saying when I said it's harder to see a target. Uh, In the South, in the nonviolent movement, we were aided always, on the whole, by the brutality of our opponent. Uh, It isn't the same way in the uh, north. The other thing is that you don't have legal segregation uh, in the North as you do in the South. So it is much more difficult to get people to see exactly what you're doing. But uh, it isn't an impossible job. It's uh, it's a hard, it's a tedious job at times to get people to be aroused from their apathetic slumbers. But I still feel that uh, Negroes in the North can be motivated just as they were motivated in the South. And I think as time goes on with the growing economic deprivation in the Negro community, it will even be easier because people will come to see that not only is something wrong in general, but something is wrong in particular in their own economic and housing situations.
3: Well, what is it?
1: I mean, how do you find it? Uh, It's very subtle in the North, is it not? It's subtle, but it's uh, becoming much more visible. Uh, uh, Anybody can see that the schools are more segregated in the North today than they were in 1954 when the Supreme Court rendered its decision declaring segregation unconstitutional. Anybody can look around the ghetto and see that ghetto schools are predominantly segregated and devoid of quality. Anyone who moves through a major ghetto of our country will see the housing conditions. Uh, People don't have to be reminded that they are forced to live in slums in many instances, and they're often rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. And it isn't too hard to see the exploitation that the Negro confronts in the ghetto, where he is forced to pay Uh, more for less, and constantly trying to make ends meet, but because of either no job as a result of unemployment, or a job that is so uh, economically unprofitable that the person can't make ends meet. And I think they see all of these things, and more and more they are coming to see them, because before the people of the North were looking to the South and they supported the struggles of the South. Now they are coming to see that their problems
3: are very real and they've got organized to grapple with them. Was there something hypocritical about the fact that the South existed and the North could point the finger? And then when the Civil Rights Acts were passed in the early sixties, you couldn't point the finger anymore? Well, there was no doubt about the hypocrisy
1: of uh, large segments of the nation on the whole question of of racial equality. I think the best example is that many of the senators from the North and the West and congressmen generally who voted for civil rights legislation in 64 and even 65 with the voting rights bill refused last year to vote for civil rights legislation because it dealt with an issue applicable to the North, the whole housing question. And uh, this, it seems to me, was the greatest expression of the hypocrisy of uh, many of our citizens and many of the senators and congressmen of the North. But isn't that
3: part of the dilemma now? that people knew that Negroes were being denied, what was guaranteed to them by the Constitution, by the fact that they were citizens of this country. Then when they were given those rights, do you feel the white community said, well, we've given them all that we have, now it's up to them?
1: Well, I think the dilemma is much deeper, and I think uh, one during this period of transition has to be very honest with America. And honesty impels me to admit that America has uh, broad racist elements still alive. Racism is still uh, existing in American society in many areas of the society, North and South. And the other thing is that there has never been a single solid, determined commitment of large segments of white comer- America on the whole question of racial equality, Uh, I think we have to see that vacillation has always existed, ambivalence has always existed, and this to me is the so-called white backlash. It's merely a new name for an old phenomenon. I see the white backlash as a continuation of the same ambivalence and vacillation of white America and the whole question of racial justice that has existed uh, since the founding of our nation. I think the other thing that uh, we must see at this time is that many of the people who supported us in Selma, in Birmingham, were really outraged about the extremist behavior toward Negroes. But they were not at that moment, and they are not now, committed to genuine equality for Negroes. It's much easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee an annual income, for instance, to get rid of poverty for Negroes and all poor people. It's much easier to integrate a bus uh, than it is to make genuine integration a reality and quality education a reality in our schools. It's much easier to integrate even a public park than it is to get rid of slums. And I think we are in a new era, a new phase of the struggle, where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years, to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we are getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in
3: good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregation as people devoid or thinking they're devoid of racism, do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America?
1: Well, it depends on the level that we are talking here uh, because I think you have to make a distinction between the people who are genuinely and absolutely committed in the white community on the question of of racial equality, and I must confess that I think they are in a very small minority. I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality, and uh, they're always looking for an excuse uh, to go but so far.
3: Why are they looking for the excuse? What is it about the Negro? I mean, every other group that came as an immigrant, somehow, not easily, but somehow got around it. Is it just the fact that Negroes are black? That's a part
1: of it, and growing, that grows out of something else. You can't thingify anything without depersonalizing that something. If you use something as a means to an end, at that moment you make it a thing and you depersonalize it. The fact is that the Negro was a slave in this country for two hundred and forty four years. That act uh, that was uh, a willful thing that was done. The Negro was brought here and changed, treated in very human fashion. And this led to the thingification of the Negro. So he was not looked upon as a person. He was not looked upon as a human being with the same Uh, status and worth as other human beings, and the other thing is that human beings cannot continue to do wrong without eventually uh, rationalizing that wrong. So slavery was justified morally, biologically, uh, theoretically, scientifically, everything else. And it seems to me that white America must see that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. Uh, that is one thing that other immigrant groups have't had to face. The other thing is that the color became a stigma. American society made the negroes' color a stigma, and uh, that can never be uh, overlooked. So I think these things are absolutely necessary. The other thing is that America freed the slaves in nineteen I mean eighteen sixty three through the Emancipation Proclamation. Of Abraham Lincoln, but gave the slaves no land or nothing in reality, and as a matter of fact, to, to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base and yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa, who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years, any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger, it was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven, it was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate, and therefore it was freedom and famine at the same time. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, o- they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps, but uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color a stigma
3: and something worthless and degrading. Apart from wanting to live better, which all of us want to do, to raise one's children in a better way, to be better, does the Negro in America know what he wants to be?
1: I'm convinced that uh, almost every Negro in this country, other than those who have been so scarred by the system that they've become pathological in the process, And we all have to battle with pathology. Nobody really knows what it means uh, to be a Negro unless one can really experience it. And I know we all have to battle with this constant drain of uh, a feeling of nobodiness. But in spite of this, uh, I think the vast majority of Negroes in this country know that they want to be people. They want to be men. They want equality, period. It just boils down to that and we haven't been able to be people. We haven't been men because of all of the uh, conditions that we've lived with and the syndrome of deprivation surrounding conditions, whether it's in housing, uh, in the economic area, or in schools, or in the vicious credit practices that we face in the ghetto, and all of the problems of closed doors and constant defeats. But uh, in spite of all this, I think we all know, uh, basically, that we want to be men. We want to be persons judged not on the basis of the color of our skin, but on the basis of the content of our character.
3: But you know that many young Negroes don't want anything that smacks of the American white middle class. But do they want something that smacks of whatever is the black middle class, or do they just not want bourgeois values, which, after all, are the basis of this democracy?
1: Well, I think uh, we have to see what they are saying. Uh, I would be the first to agree that uh, integration does not mean giving up everything that has an Afro-American taint, so to speak, a background. I think there are certain unique things within any culture and certain cultural patterns that when you get to the process of amalgamation can really lift the whole culture. And it seems to me that integration at its best is the opportunity to participate in the beauty of diversity. I think the other thing that we've got to see is that these young people are saying that There must be a revolution of values in our country. As Jimmy Baldwin said on one occasion, what advantage is there in being integrated into a burning house? And I feel that uh, there is a need for a revolution of values in America. Because some of the values that presently exist are certainly out of line with the uh, values and the idealistic structure Uh, that brought our nation into being unfortunately we haven't been true to these ideals and many of the values of uh, so-called white middle class society are values uh, that need to be reviewed and uh, reevaluated and in a real sense they need to be changed so i think the young people in the negro community who are raising these questions are raising some very profound questions about our total society in other words they are saying that there must be a restructuring of the architecture uh, of our society where values are concerned. And with this, I would agree with. So in the quest for integration, I think we can offer our whole nation something, because there are three evils in our nation. It's not only racism, but economic... Exploitation of poverty would be one and then militarism and I think in a sense and in a very real sense These three are tied inextricably together and we aren't going to get rid of one without getting rid of the other
3: Well, you stood on the Lincoln Memorial that day in August 63 And you said I had a dream Did that dream envision that you Could see a war in Asia, preventing the federal government doing for the Negroes, preventing the society doing for the Negroes, that which you think had to be done?
1: No, I didn't envision that then. I must confess that that period was a great period of hope for me, and uh, I'm sure for many others all across the nation, many of, of the Negroes who had about lost hope saw a solid decade of progress in the South. And uh, in 1954, which was, uh, I mean, 64, 1963, nine years after the Supreme Court's decision to be in the march on Washington, meant a great deal. It was a high moment, a great watershed moment. But I must confess that uh, that dream that I had that day has at many points turned into a nightmare. Now, I'm not one to lose hope, I keep on hoping, Uh, I still have faith in the future, but I've had to analyze many things over the last few years, and I would say over the last few months, I've gone through a lot of soul-searching and agonizing moments, and I've come to see that uh, we have uh, many more difficult days ahead, and some of the old optimism was a little superficial and now it must be tempered with a solid realism and I think the realistic fact is that we still have a long, long way to go and that we are involved in a war on Asian soil uh, which if not checked and stopped can poison the very
3: soul of our nation. Dr. King, even if there had not been a war in Asia, would you still not have had this nightmare insofar as the Negro movement for equality then touched on two things that the white community holds sacred, their children and their
1: property? Oh, I have no doubt that we would have encountered great difficulties, great problems of resistance if the war had not... uh been in existence, so that I'm not going to say that all of our problems will be solved if the war in Vietnam is ended. But I do say that the war makes it infinitely more difficult to deal with these problems. Uh, when a nation becomes obsessed with the guns of war, uh, it loses its social perspective, and programs of social uplift suffer. This is just a a fact of history so that we do face many more difficulties uh, as a result of the war. It's much more difficult to really arouse a conscience during a time of war. I noticed the other day, some weeks ago, a Negro was shot down in Chicago, and it was a clear case of police brutality. That was on page 30 of the paper, but on page 1 at the top, was 780 Viet Cong killed. That is something about a war like this that makes people insensitive. It dulls the conscience. It strengthens the forces of reaction. And it brings into being bitterness and hatred and violence. And it strengthened the military industrial complex of our country. And it's made our job much more difficult because I think we can go along with some programs if we didn't have this war on our hands that would cause people to adjust to new developments, just as they did in the South. They said they'd never ride the bus with us, blood would flow in the streets, they wouldn't go to school, and all of these things. But when people came to see that they had to do it because the law insisted, they finally adjusted. And I think white people all over this country will adjust once the nation makes it clear that in schools, in housing, We've got to learn to live together as brothers. I think the biggest problem now is that we got our gains over the last 12 years at bargain rates, so to speak, Uh, didn't cost the nation anything. In fact, it helped the economic side of the nation to integrate lunch counters and public accommodations. It didn't cost the nation anything uh, to get uh, the right to vote established. Now we are confronting issues that cannot be solved without costing the nation billions of dollars. Now, I think this is where we're getting our greatest resistance. They may put it on many other things, but
2: we can't get rid of slums and... Does it feel like it's been 50 years? Feels like it was yesterday. It was April 4th, 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee, before Andrew Young was an ambassador to the world, before Jesse Jackson became a reverend and a groundbreaking political figure. They were two young men dedicated to the cause of equality, led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it was a chilly Thursday afternoon at the Lorraine Motel. I was talking to
7: him, telling him he needed a coat. And he sort of raised his head to kind of see, test the weather.
2: And uh, pow. A single shot to his chin and King was dead. He was 39 years old. Now, a half century later, Young and Jackson returned to the very spot where their friend and leader was assassinated. His shoes got caught under here and it knocked him out of his shoes. A photographer who was staying three rooms down snapped this iconic image as King lay dying.
7: And we were pointing over there because the police were here. They were running over this way and we were trying to tell them to go back that way. That's where the shot came from.
2: Do you think he heard
7: the shot? I don't think he heard the shot or felt it. I think it was a beautiful death. My first reaction was to be mad, and the second reaction was to say, well, if anybody's entitled to a reward, you have sure earned it. And,
2: you know, take your flight to heaven. Young went on to serve as congressman, as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, and as mayor of Atlanta. Jackson continued social and political activism and ran for president, twice. Every move I made, whether it was a demonstration or running for the presidency, I always felt his spirit in some way, I touched base with him before doing it. Jackson, now 76, and young, 86, say King did not fear death. And even as they stand on the balcony that was once stained with King's blood, they're convinced that he will never die.
7: I've been to 152 countries, I've never been anywhere. Well, people have wanted to ask me about Martin Luther King.
2: If he'd be 89 years old, he'd be just an old preacher who preached great sermons. His martyrdom is power. His spirit is alive. Victor Blackwell, CNN, Memphis.
9: I don't feel no. Way. I have come too far From where I started from No 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 Nobody told me change It's going to be easy. I don't believe he would break me this far To just leave me Can I get a witness here tonight? I've been so sick I thought I couldn't get away But the Lord came and touched my body. And tonight, I'm able to tell you, he's a doctor. Tell me, why did He bring us this far? <laughs> if He was gonna leave us, can I say it one more time? Will you help me say it? Oh! Tonight, I wonder what you join in and help me sing just one time?
0: Come on! Ah.
4: You know who it is. You know what it is. It's The Sizzle here on Iron Skillet Radio, Iron Skillet Television. And we'll see you, my friend, on the other side.
2: Thank you for listening to The Sizzle, the hottest sports talk in the 219 here on Iron Skillet Television and Iron Skillet Radio. That's the question
1: before you tonight. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to all of the hours that I usually spend in my office every day and every week as a pastor? The question is not, if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. Let us rise up tonight with a greater readiness. Let us stand with a greater determination. And let us move on. In these powerful days, these days of challenge, to make America what it ought to be, we have an opportunity to make America a better nation. And I want to thank God once more for allowing me to be here with you. You know, several years ago, I was in New York City autographing the first book that I had written. And while sitting there, autographing books, a demented black woman came up. The only question I heard from her was, you Martin Luther King and I was looking down writing and I said yes the next minute I felt something beating on my chest before I knew it I had been stabbed by this demented woman I was rushed to Harlem Hospital it was a dark Saturday afternoon that blade had gone through and the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery, and once that's punctured, you're drowned in your own blood, that's the end of you. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. Well, about four days later, they allowed me, after the operation, after my chest had been opened and the blade had been taken out, to move around in the wheelchair in the hospital. They allowed me to read some of the mail that came in, and from all over the states and the world, kind letters came in. I read a few, but one of them I will never forget. I had received one from the president and the vice president. i have forgotten what those telegrams said. I'd received a visit and a letter from the governor of New York, but I'd forgotten what that letter said. Yes. But there was another letter that came from a little girl, a young girl who was a student at the White Plains High School. And I looked at that letter, and I'll never forget it. Said simply, dear Dr. King, I am a ninth grade student at the White Plains High School. She said, while it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering, and I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. And I want to say tonight, I want to say tonight that I, too, am happy that I didn't sneeze because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960, when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And I knew that as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream and taking the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 when we decided to take a ride for freedom and end its segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1962. The Negroes in all Bennett, Georgia decided to straighten their backs up. And whenever men and women straighten their backs up, they are going somewhere because a man can't ride your back unless it is bent. If I had sneezed... If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been here in 1963. The Black people of Birmingham, Alabama aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the civil rights bill if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have had a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama, to see the great movement there if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. And they were telling me, now it doesn't matter now really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning, and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked and to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane we had to check out everything carefully and we've had the plane protected and guarded all night and then I got into Memphis and some began to say the threats I talk about the threats that were out what would happen to me from some of That we, as a people, will get to the promised land. So I'm happy
0: tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.
1: (laughs) Every now and then, I guess all think rich to About that day day when we will be victimized with what is life's final common denominator. That's something that we call death. We all think about it, and every now and then I think about my own death, and I think about my own funeral, and I don't think of it in a morbid sense. Every now and then I ask myself, what is it? But I would once to say, and I leave the word to you this morning. If any of you are around, when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. And every now and then I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards, that's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King, Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King, Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the wall, question. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked. I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were imprisoned. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major. Say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. And that's all I want to say. If I can help somebody. As I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a word song, if I can show somebody he's traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. If I can do my duty as a Christian, ought, if I can bring salvation to a world once wrought, if I can spread the message as the Master taught, then my living will not be in vain. Yes, Jesus, I want to be on your right or your left side, not for any selfish reason. I want to be on your right or your left side, not in terms of some political kingdom or ambition, but I just want to be there in love and in justice and in truth and in commitment to others so that we can make of this old world a
0: new world you